You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, There's a fetish shop in Berlin. I mean, of course there is. There are lots. At least a half a dozen I can think of off the top of my head. Blackstyle, Mr. B, Boucherai, Lindinger, Sling King, Connection Shop, and Gear Berlin. If you've been to a leather fetish event that more than 10 gay men showed up at, you've probably seen at least five Gear Berlin t-shirts. They are iconic. You see them all over the place at big kink events. You see them all over online profiles too. You know how I'm always saying gay men are better at sex because we communicate? We communicate because we have to, because gay men can't just default to PID sex. And once you start communicating with your sex partners about the sex you're going to have, once someone's asked you what you're into the first time, it gets easier and easier to communicate. You keep communicating. You keep telling people what you're into. Gear's iconic and ubiquitous t-shirts and the way gay men have embraced them. Really good example of how gay people really embrace, also embrace communication about who they are, about what they want. So a gear t-shirt, if you've never seen one, it says gear on it, of course, but there's another word on each of their t-shirts in large, bold white letters across the chest with an arrow pointing up at the face of the guy wearing that t-shirt. And they come with lots of different words on them. Sub, dom, slut, Bondage, biker, fister, fisty, master, slave, owned, alpha, sadist, daddy, puppy, locked. That means the guy wearing the t-shirt has a chastity device locked on his dick. Boots, obviously, into boots. Gummi, that means rubber in German. Oink, dude's a pig. Dirty dicks, dudes into, well, seems pretty self-explanatory to me, doesn't it? Smelly socks, ditto. Sniffer. A sniffer t-shirt. I think that's the t-shirt someone who appreciates those dirty dicks and smelly socks gets to wear to the big kink events. That is just a partial list of all the t-shirts you can get at gear. And the reason I was thinking about gear t-shirts recently, Tucker Carlson, of all people. Not that I've ever seen him in one. Not that I want to. I own a couple of gear t-shirts and No, I won't tell you which ones. And I don't want Tucker to ruin them for me. No, no, see, it was what Tucker had to say on his show recently about the redesigned and relaunched M&M mascots. Maybe you heard the scandal. Maybe you heard the kerfuffle. Those anthropomorphized chocolate candy characters that the Mars Corporation has been using to sell us M&Ms for years, for decades. They redesigned them. They remade them. They made them a little bit more, I don't know, of the moment, of the times. And anyway, the green M&M, she was the hottie M&M. The M&M everyone wanted, or all the straight guys who work at Fox News apparently wanted. Sexy mouth, plucked eyebrows, and most importantly, high-heeled go-go boots. Well, they made some changes. Take it away, Tucker. The green M&M, you will notice, is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. Why the change? Well, according to M&M's, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles because leading women do not wear sexy boots. Leading women wear frumpy shoes. The frumpier, the better. That's the rule. So, yeah, 
when future historians identify the precise moment the American empire began to collapse, it'll be the moment Fox News personalities and Fox News viewers realize they couldn't get it up anymore for the green M&M. Because why? Because sneakers. But who says sneakers aren't sexy? Gear Berlin, which has made it their mission to identify every last sexy thing on the planet that you can put on a t-shirt or anything anybody out there could possibly find sexy, even dirty dicks. The Gear Berlin fetish shop that's made a fortune selling their iconic t-shirts, one of those t-shirts sneaks with an arrow pointing up at the guy wearing that t-shirt. Sneaks for sneakers. It is a fetish. Sneakers are. There's a whole sneaker fetish community out there. And sneakers aren't just sexy on guys. They're hot on women, too. I mean, it's not like women who go to the gym in sneakers are suddenly invisible to straight men at the gym. I haven't seen a straight man at the gym I go to in ages, but I know there are gyms out there with straight men in them, if only because women who go to those gyms in their sneakers complain about those straight guys, or some of them, quite a lot. And those women aren't complaining or don't complain about being invisible to all the straight men at the gym on account of their magic cloak of invisibility sneakers. And it's not like men don't catcall women they see out jogging in tennis shoes and sneakers. They do. They shouldn't. They do. I could maybe understand Tucker Carlson possibly having a thing for the green M&M if the M&M characters, including the green one with the go-go boots, had been introduced when Tucker was a child. If that comedic ensemble, as Business Insider described it, that transformed M&M's from a candy also ran around since the 1930s into the candy store colossus. It is today if those characters, including again the green M&M, often described as sexy, sometimes described as slutty, if they'd been around when Tucker was a prepubescent child sitting in front of the television and not a dangerous fascist on the television. I could see that. The odd adult male being sad about the green M&M losing her boots but that character wasn't introduced until the late 1990s when Tucker was an adult. And it's in childhood. That's when people, when people who are still children, randomly latch onto random stimuli that then blooms into fully realized sexual kinks in adulthood. I mean, take this guy. Frosted Flakes have the taste adults have grown to love. They're great. Tony the Tiger, the breakfast cereal mascot with the amazing lats and the deep voice who was introduced in 1952. It's hard to put a number on exactly how many adult furries Tony the Tiger is personally responsible for creating, but I can confidently say it's a big fucking number. Anyway, this is me saying I do not think Tucker Carlson has a thing for green M&Ms and go-go boots, not a sexual thing, and Anyone who does, I'm sorry, anyone who was exposed to the green M&M, the sexy slutty M&M in childhood during those crucial formative years, and your erotic imagination latched on to that particular M&M in those particular shoes, uh, take comfort. She's still got a pretty mouth and lady eyebrows. She's just not in go-go boots anymore. She's in sneakers, which are hot. Here is a store for gay men, and you're likelier to see their sneaks t-shirts on gay men than on straight ones, but anybody of any gender, can be hot in sneakers, as men and women all over the world prove every day. Men and women, and now green M&Ms too. What's really going on here? Well, obviously, Fox News is in the business of ginning up outrage over 
all cultural change, no matter how small or insignificant, something changes, anything changes, Fox News cranks out an outrage segment, throws it at the wall in the old folks' home, and sees if it sticks. But maybe in this case, high-heeled boots being swapped out for sneakers, maybe something else is going on. Because you know what someone in sneakers can do pretty easily? Well, yeah, they can get down on their knees more easily than someone in high heels can, as gay guys in gear sneaks t-shirts at fetish events in Berlin prove all the time. So there is that. But a bigger concern for viewers of Fox News, or I should say for the most important single viewer of Fox News, is something else people in sneakers can do pretty easily. Run the fuck away. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Q, lots of my A, and joining me on both the micro and the magnum, superstar, pornographer, smarty pants pornographer, iconic pornographer, Erica Lust joins me today to talk about porn, to talk about Billie Eilish, and to talk about the conversations parents need to be having with their kids about porn. Also on the magnum, my mean lesbian boss, Tracy Peaches Cataldo, comes back to the show to talk with me about a particularly demanding virgin and why she might be that way. All that coming up. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am calling about COVID vaccine related question and dealing with in-laws. My in-laws, I've worked really, really hard to love and get along with. We have a lot of varying opinions and lifestyle and kind of more recently we've been like feeling the love for each other and none of them though like decided to get vaccinated and my partner and I are fully vaxxed and boosted and my partner put up a you know you're not allowed to come to our house unless you are vaccinated and and I'm trying to be a little more open and we'll visit them if they COVID test prior to recently my sister-in-law posted her support of the Supreme Court justice ruling to get the mandate on vaccines. And I countered it because I couldn't help myself and was like, this is the same Supreme Court that's forcing women to give birth. And like, I totally disagree. And she really, really lit into me and, you know, called and called me judgmental and how judgmental and uncomfortable um, my partner and I make her. And it's just really hard. Like, I feel like I worked so hard to, like, embrace this family. Like, my partner didn't really embrace them when we met. And I sort of encouraged him talking to them a little more because you only get one family. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, like, opened my heart and I'm just feeling really sort of like verbally assaulted, but also I just don't know how to let them go or how to move forward. You know, like we don't really see them that much, but, and it's like a real challenge when we do, but I just, I just feel like I need some guidance how I can let them go or address it in the future. I, I know the rules of engagement really well, so I like know how to disagree and with someone productively. So it's just, it's been really troubling me. And I try to calm the ice and be like, you know, I hope you and I can talk about our differences without angering each other. And she just went off to say how we should respect her choice. And if I'm pro-choice, I should respect her choice. And oh, it's really annoying. 
Oh my God, these thin-skinned right-wing family members and their annoying fucking double standards. Your sister-in-law can rub her idiotic views in your face. She can celebrate the Supreme Court's decision uh, saying that Biden can't impose a mandate on large employers to require vaccinations or testing. It was vaccinations or testing, not just vaccinations. And she can dance around in the end zone like a fucking idiot. And if you push back, oh, well, then you're not respecting her opinions. You're being judgmental. I guess because she got her opinion out there first, she wasn't being judgmental or shaming you for your opinions. Or she's just a thin-skinned fucking right-wing family member cliche. We spent all this time on the left wringing our hands about how to deal with the racist uncle at Thanksgiving. And all of this is framed around the conservative relatives get to say whatever they want. They get to be the biggest fucking assholes they can possibly be. And if we say boo to them, they have a fucking meltdown. And I think they have a fucking meltdown because they know they're wrong. They read this, they see the stories that everybody dying of this fucking disease in hospitals now, or, you know, 10 or if you're older, if you're an older person, like I assume your boyfriend or husband's parents might be, if you're an older person, 50 times likelier to die if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaxxed and boosted. And on some level, they know they're risking their lives and they don't want to be reminded of this because it's all been turned into by their God Trump, a partisan game. All right. What do you do? She's asking you to respect her choice. Fine. You can respect her choice. You have respected her choice. You haven't kicked down her door and tackled her and held her down while somebody else attempted to vaccinate her. You have respected her choice not to get vaccinated. She has to respect your choice to not hang out with people, not allow people in your house who haven't been vaccinated and not to go see people who haven't been vaccinated. You know, when they throw those stats around that nine out of 10 or 49 out of 50 people dying right now in hospitals from COVID are unvaccinated, it still means that every once in a while, a vaccinated person like Colin Powell, who had other comorbidities, other health issues, is also dying. And you don't want to risk your life. She can make her choices. She can't impose her choices on you, which is what unvaxxed family members and friends are demanding when they insist that, like, they should be able to go into a restaurant without a mask on or get on an airplane without being vaccinated, which absolutely, by this point, should be required. You have to get vaccinated to fly into Europe or fly into the United States. You should have to get vaccinated to fly within the United States. Ugh. Just like she can't go everywhere unmasked or unvaxxed, she can't go into your house unmasked or unvaxxed. That's your choice. And she has to respect it. I want to say she has to fucking eat it, but let's just say she has to respect your choice. And yeah, you've tried with your partner's extended family. You've tried. I would urge you to stop fucking trying it's not worth it. These people aren't in your life that much to begin with. And to the extent that they are in your life, they're not exactly adding joy to your life and subtracting them, marching them out of your life, removing them to the extent that they're in your life now from your life, I think will make your life a little bit more joyful. Stop thinking. Stop wasting time 
wondering how you can possibly make a relationship work with someone who never gives a thought to how they can make their relationship work with you. Your sister-in-law, your other in-laws, they don't give a flying fuck about you, your health, your safety, or their own health and safety. Fuck them. Don't spend time with them. Don't see them at all. And unfollow them on fucking Facebook. Hello, Dan and friends. I'm calling because I ended a relationship of one year long two months ago, and I'm second-guessing my decision there. I'm 31 years old, and I've always been the one to end all of my significant relationships. And I'm really questioning what kind of connection I'm waiting for, and I'm afraid I'm setting unrealistic expectations for a relationship that might fall into my lap one day. This woman was wonderful. I had her complete love and devotion, and she was willing to do everything and anything necessary to be with me. And at the time, I was in a pretty shitty place in my life and didn't know how to express myself and my needs and left her in the dark and ended the relationship because I felt powerless and overwhelmed. And with every day that passes by, I'm really scared, Dan, that I'm losing my opportunity to be with her. So I just want to ask you, how do you reach back out to someone that you ended a relationship with? How do you manage to start, even begin to gain their trust again, have them give you a second chance? And above all, how do you do so while being really sensitive and acknowledging how much pain you've caused them, acting in not just out of selfish desire, but with love and compassion for them as well? I feel for your ex-girlfriend. A similar thing happened to my mom not long after, a few years after my parents uh, got divorced, after my dad left my mom. She very tentatively got back out there and began dating, and she met a man she really liked, and he really liked her, and they really clicked, and it was really good. And he ended it. Broke her heart. And she was pretty devastated. She was in a lot of pain. And we were all living at home then. We were still teenagers, young adults. And uh, it was kind of a crazy chaotic time in my family's life. One of those all hands on decks moments for family where everybody moved home to keep the house together, to help keep mom together. And that guy who broke my mom's heart, they wound up getting married a few years after that. Uh, And they were together for decades until the end of my mother's life. So I've seen it. I've seen someone get dumped by someone that they'd been dating for more than a year, have their heart broken. And then when that person, that guy, reached back out to my mom, my stepdad, who I love very much and talked to just the other day, he made it work. They made it work. There was pain there, though, pain that had to be acknowledged. It sounds to me like you're in the right place. You're going to go into this conversation acknowledging that you're working through or finally seeing through your commitment issues, which were tied perhaps to unrealistic expectations. Although you might want to leave that out because what you're emphasizing, if you talk, well, you know, back when I dumped you, I had unrealistic expectations of perfection and you're not perfect. So yeah, that's not a line of thought you want to pursue. It's not an argument you want to throw out on the table, even though that's 
absolutely true of all relationships. And sometimes when we're young, we do have unrealistic expectations. We may believe that there is the one out there and we look at someone and they're not perfect for us in every possible way. There's some tension or conflict and we tell the lie to ourselves that the culture told to us and say, oh, well, the perfect person's out there. I just haven't found them yet. And I'm going to go find that perfect person and leave behind this great, wonderful, loving person in pursuit of the unicorn, the white whale, the the person who doesn't exist, the perfect person, the one. All right, you learned that lesson, maybe in the same way that my stepdad learned that lesson in the wake of a breakup that you now regret. What do you do? You call, maybe you send an email, and you ask to get back together, and you acknowledge, as I think you're prepared to do, the pain you caused, and you share what insights you've had beyond settling down requires some settling for, and you're willing to settle for this person now because you've readjusted your expectations and they are no longer unrealistic. You talk about how you missed them. You talk about what you loved about the relationship. If they're willing to talk with you, you know, maybe your girlfriend, your ex-girlfriend went out and met somebody else and she's not going to be available to you. That is sometimes a thing that happens. You dump somebody, their heart is broken. Your heart breaks after you dump them. You realize it was a mistake. You circle back in hopes of picking things back up where you'd left them and only to find out that you can't because they've moved on more quickly than you have. Does that mean you carry a torch for this person for the rest of your life? Does that mean you shat the bed and it can't be unshat, screwed the pooch and it can't be unscrewed? No, that means you get out there. There is no the one. If you dumped somebody and you want them back and they won't take you back because they don't want you back or they've met somebody else and they've moved on, they're not the one. You know, you didn't leave them in hopes of finding the one, or maybe you did in hopes of finding the one, then you realize there is no the one. Well, that person who won't take you back, they're also not the one. There are others out there who could be, you know, your 0.67, your 0.78 could be what she was. So this is not an easy conversation to initiate. It's not going to be an easy thing for you to say. It's not going to be an easy thing for her to hear, the pain of the breakup is likely to come bubbling up to the surface when you get back in touch with her. Be prepared for that. And if she'll keep talking with you, maybe you can move past that together. My mom and my stepdad aren't the only example of long-term successful relationships, people who were coupled up for a very long time, married for a very long time, where there had been a breakup early on during the dating stage uh, that they got past, reconnected, uh, and put behind them. And it became a part of their origin story. It actually became something that they sometimes talked and laughed about. But that talking and laughing about it, it being easy, it being a bump in the road that they could put in perspective because it was well behind them, that came in time. It's going to seem like a mountain, that bump in the road, when you first contact your ex-girlfriend and ask her if she's willing to sit down with you and talk because you know now that you made a mistake. Hi, Dan. Nancy in the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. 32-year-old, cis, heteroflexible guy here. And I'm calling because I've recently started seeing a 24-year-old virgin woman, and I kind of don't know how to handle it. <laughs> Basically, she, I think she falls into the category of just never found the right guy. And 
I feel a lot of pressure when it comes to being that right guy. You know, I've never entered into a, a serious monogamous relationship with anyone before having sex with them. So this is all kind of new territory for me. Um, we've only been dating for about two months, but I feel like I have to walk on eggshells when it comes to anything physical between us. We have this weird dynamic building up where I'm basically down for whatever she wants me to do, but I have to keep asking her permission and rubbing up against her boundaries to find out what she's comfortable with, which is especially confusing because she's told me that she prefers to be dominated in the bedroom and she likes to be told what to do, which I'm into, but I guess like only within this narrow field of what she's actually comfortable with. And at a certain point, it it kind of starts to feel inequitable. Like, I've spent a lot of time investing in her pleasure. I'm happy to use my fingers or my mouth to get her off, which she really enjoys. And we've even done some more involved things, like she expressed interest in me tying her up, so we did that, and using a vibrator on her, so we did that. But all she'll ever really offer in return is a hand job. And in fact, she would prefer if it was an over-the-underwear hand job and if it's not over the underwear, there's like a strict zone where cum can go, like below the neck, but above the belly button. And I don't know, it just feels like, I mean, I mean, I know it's not supposed to be a completely equal relationship in, in orgasms, and I'm not trying to keep score, but it leaves me feeling kind of undesired or untrustworthy. And I don't know, I've proposed other things like watching each other masturbate, and that's also a no-go. And I, I don't want to sound like one of those teenager assholes like, oh, if you really loved me, you would blah, 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 blah. But I feel like even a simple blowjob would go a long way towards kind of leveling the playing field a bit and open new doors for us as a couple. I don't know. I'm just trying to remember that all of this is still new to her and probably feels more significant for her than it does for me having a bit more experience. And I like her, but Sexual compatibility in a relationship is really important to me, and especially if we're going to be monogamous, which she says is the only option for her. So I'm just having trouble kind of navigating this whole thing. All right, Tracy Cataldo, my mean lesbian boss, Tracy Peaches Cataldo, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah, we're all thinking the same thing, right? Which is? Is she lesbian? Is she gay? She's not like dick. She doesn't like dick. Doesn't like dick. Wants to be fingered. Wants to be gone down on. Wants to be tied to the bed and have a vibrator used on her. Doesn't want to see his dick. Doesn't really want to touch his dick. Doesn't like there's a limited cum zone that he's allowed to ejaculate on and not into anything. You know, my follow-up question for the caller would be how tightly closed are her eyes during sex or during when you're servicing? I mean, it's if she is a lesbian and she is gay and doesn't want any of those things. I mean, even the allowable cum zone is a stretch. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that that's still on the table. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that seems a minor concession. Her preference is an over-the-underpants hand job, which is just a rub job. And if she he's going to come, she doesn't want to look at his dick. And as far as she's concerned, she doesn't want to like watch the cum come out of it and doesn't want the cum 
in the same room with her, really. And so I, I listened to that whole call and thought, is she a lesbian? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, one thing's obviously clear by everything he says is that she doesn't like Dick. And, and then the next question is why, right? And so, yeah, I think we all are thinking the same thing. Like, I'd love to meet her. I feel like I would, I could tell in three seconds, my, my gaydar has improved lately, but. <laughs> he says that she's a virgin and is therefore, you know, inexperienced. You know, there are people out there who have an aversion to Dick because they've been assaulted or molested or, or raped. And so maybe she has some history of sexual assault or trauma that she hasn't shared with him. But that's not where my mind went first. My mind went to call Trace. Yeah, I mean, I think my mind also, like, you know, went to the the same place that yours did as far as, like, maybe, you know, she's obviously a lesbian here. But, I mean, I also, there are follow-up questions with, you know, I feel, first of all, I, I'm, I feel sad for this guy who called in. I mean, I think sexual connection is so important in a relationship, right? Like, feeling desired is so important in a relationship, and he's not getting either of these things. It's pretty early on in their relationship, right? Like she's pretty young and I mean, not pretty young. She's, she's younger uh, than him, I think. 24, but inexperienced. inexperienced. Yeah. And, and he sounds lovely. He sounds great. He sounds like, super patient, patient, super open, um, you know, to. Ex- GGG. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I feel sad for him that he's not having his needs met, but at the same time, you know, this is this, if it is some kind of, um, you know, sexual trauma that this woman experienced in at some point in her life, you know, that's going to be for her to figure out and not for him to figure out for her. And for her to figure out before she gets into a committed monogamous relationship and not something that is a trap that he walked into and now there's no way out. Yeah. And, and maybe this is her way of figuring it out, of, of finding this like really nice guy who is going to be open and he seems safe and um and maybe maybe this is her way of figuring out to date this next guy but you know this guy also has to set his own boundaries and take care of himself and and he also needs to state his needs and and uh, right and, and he can prioritize his needs while still holding on to his good guy card you know of course i really feel like there's a kind of a pressure trap that some people who are good and kind and patient fall into where they don't certainly don't want their partners to do anything that their partners aren't comfortable doing or don't want to do, but they have needs that aren't getting met. And in this case, very significant needs, almost all his needs aren't getting met. And he's going to feel like, well, if I tell her I'm going to break up with her, if we don't start doing more, she's going to feel pressured to do more. And so then I guess the other option is break up with her without any warning and she'll feel blindsided by that. And so I would encourage him to not, you know, fall into the pressure trap where he feels like he can't say anything because he doesn't want to pressure her. Right. But he also feels like he can't go because he didn't say anything. And then he's stuck. I, I totally hear you. I think this guy worded his question very, you know, eloquently. And I, I don't think he's going to have a hard time um, expressing his his needs to her in the same way. I, I, I you know, obviously, like, you, you're never going to do, he should never do anything that's not consensual, right? He's not going to force her in any situation. He's simply just stating his needs as far as, you know, this is, these are, everybody has boundaries and everybody has uh, a right to, you know, ask for what they, what they want. And I, I think he can do a good job of um, expressing his appreciation for where, where she, where she's at and, 
you know? Um, And and if he says like, look, we have to move on to more than just these over the underpants hand jobs, like, like he said, a blow job would go a long way or perhaps moving on to vaginal intercourse if she's ready. And it seems to me that the caller is sensitive enough that if she agrees, because she feels pressured to do oral on him or to move on to PIV and she seems miserable in anticipation of it right before or in the moment, if it starts to happen, he can, he'll stop. He'll, 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 you'll be able to call her. You'll be able to tell if she's only going through the motions to keep you and she is miserable being in the same room with your dick or being closer to your dick than she's gotten before. And then you can call it off. Yeah. I mean, if it's not working for him, you know, he just needs to say like, this isn't working for me. And if she really wanted to make it work, um, you know, she can be honest with, with why she can't, what, 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 what's holding her up or what, what's stalling her. And, and regardless of what it is, I think he sounds like he is open Mm -hmm. to hear her. And, um, you know, if he's saying like, I need this and she's saying, I can't do that then there, that's it. Right. Like, I mean, that's, that's how relationships work, right? You state your needs and your boundaries and someone can meet those or you have a discussion on why you can't meet them and you have a choice to make. And um, yeah, I just, man, I, regardless, I guess is the, the outcome. If she's, if, whether it's because she's a lesbian or whether it's because she has some kind of trauma in her past that's, that's halting her from moving forward. Let's hope it's because she's a lesbian. I was a gay boy in the closet sleeping with girls a long time ago. You had boyfriends before you came. Oh, don't remind me. Don't remind me. (laughs) So, so we're both guilty of what we're accusing perhaps this caller's girlfriend of being guilty of, which is going through the motions with an opposite sex partner when what you want is a same sex partner. And so I am not like pointing a finger at this guy's girlfriend and, and calling her a monster. I was the same person once upon a time, which is why I think I recognize what's really going on here. I wish we lived in a world where we didn't have to always factor in like someone's sexual trauma or experience of of rape or sexual assault that they haven't shared with you yet. That's always a possibility. (laughs) But the likelier thing going on here, in my estimation, and I wanted to run it by you, is girlfriends had died. Yeah, right. I think overall, the end of it for him is that it's, it's not, you know, it's up to him to state his needs and, and set his own boundaries. And, and you're free to go. Like if you're unsatisfied in a sexual relationship, you're free to go. And you're also free to say that that's why you're going. You're, you're allowed to prioritize sexual compatibility. Yes. You don't want to pressure anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. Someone might react to you saying it's over because I don't feel the sex is there with trying to ramp it up to keep you, but that's not going to be good sex and you're still not going to be sexually satisfied. It's still not going to work and you're still free to go. And like, okay, also, so what if, if it turns out to be him telling her his needs aren't being met and her saying, well, you're only leaving me because I won't fuck you. Well, yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Like maybe that is the case. And so that's fine. That's okay. You know, like I, and she shouldn't feel forced into it. She doesn't have to feel forced into it, but she can, you know, she can say no. And he can also say no, <laughs> bye. And she's a dyke. And she's probably just a lesbian. All right. Tracy Cataldo, <laughs> my mean lesbian boss. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Of front. course. Talk to you soon. Hi, Dan. I'm a cishet woman, 34 years old, living on the East Coast. I've been sexually active for about 15 years. I've had several partners, not not a ton of partners, but enough. And I've never had an orgasm from receiving oral sex. 
a lot of men have made valiant attempts, but none have succeeded. And I honestly dread the act because I find myself so worried about their experience and how they're doing. Are they miserable down there? I also have never even felt close to coming when it's happening. Even if I'm relaxed and, you know, comfortable with my partner, I come pretty frequently or regularly from PIV. So part of me wonders if I should just be happy with that and call it a day. But I don't want to be someone who never experiences an orgasm from oral sex, but I don't even know how to guide people to tell them what feels good because I, I literally don't know. I have no experience with that particular thing. So I'm just wondering what you think about that and what your advice to me might be. It's like a two-pronged thing where I'm stressed about how they're doing, but I also just physically don't feel much of anything. There are two reasons why you might be someone who never experiences an orgasm from oral sex. It might be that you have hangups about your body, that you worry uh, about the guy and whether he's miserable down there. And that has been exacerbated by performance anxiety because you haven't been able to come from oral sex. And so now whenever oral sex being performed on you is on the table, you feel anxious. You're not going to be able to come perform. You're not going to be able to give the guy what he wants, not get what you want, which might be an orgasm for moral sex, but give him what he wants, which is the power to give you an orgasm for moral sex. And so you've come to dread the act and nothing interferes with someone's ability to climax from any activity more than dreading that activity. All right. That's one reason why you might be someone who never experiences an orgasm from oral sex. Another reason why you might be someone who never experiences an orgasm from oral sex is that it just doesn't work for you. Doesn't turn you on. Doesn't hit your clit in the ways your clit needs to be hit to come. Now, more women are capable of climaxing from direct, intense, focused, Clitoral stimulation, they're likelier to get that from a vibrator, from hands, from fingers, their own or their partners, or a tongue during oral than they are from PIV. But there are lots of women out there who can climax from PIV, penis in vagina intercourse, in addition to being able to climax in other ways. But there are also women out there who can come from PIV, come relatively easily from PIV, and not come so easily from oral sex, which provides a lot of direct intense stimulation to the glands of the clitoris, the exposed part of the clitoris, the thing that's analogous to the head of the penis. And when you think about guys with dicks, and I've probably had more male partners over the course of my life than you've had, I've noticed a pattern. There are guys who... To come, they need a lot of basically attention paid to the head of their cock. Like they stroke themselves and it's right on the head of their cock or they're fucking you. And rather than the whole dick sliding in and out, they're just like moving the head of the cock rapidly in and out of your ass. Or when you're giving them oral sex, they just want a lot of suction on the head of the dick. And then there are guys who want a lot of attention on the shaft and not so much direct focused attention on the head. It doesn't work. It doesn't get them there. Since everything that a dude has, everything that a penis is, is also everything that a woman has. You have clitoral shafts, clitoral wings, um, everything, you know, a clit and a pussy is the box that the dick came in. It's assembled from the same basic parts. It seems reasonable to me 
it seems logical to me that just as there are many men who can come from a lot of stimulation to the head of the penis, but then also lots of men who just want attention paid to their shaft and a focus on the head doesn't get them there, there are going to be women who don't come from attention being paid, from uh, sensations being lavished on the glands of the clitoris, the head of the penis, but rather from attention being paid, sensation, uh, friction being applied to the shaft of the clitoris, to the clitoral wings that anchor your clitoris, that surround your vaginal canal. You may be one of those women. If you have no hangups, if you enjoy oral as foreplay, if you can let go of the dread uh, around whether you're going to be able to come or not from oral and just relax and enjoy it, which you'll be able to do if you tell your male partners what works and doesn't work for you. PIV gets me off. Oral gets me going. Or if oral gets you going, it's something that I enjoy. Uh, if it gives you pleasure, like, yes, eat my pussy. It doesn't turn me off. It doesn't shut me down. It doesn't dry me up. Eat my pussy. But for me, the main event, the thing that gets me there, the thing that gets me off, P-I-V. Now, there are some guys out there who are going to be disappointed, but that's their problem. This is how your pussy works, if this is how your pussy works. This is how your pussy works. These are how your orgasms happen. A guy who really gets off on eating a woman's pussy and being right there, face down in her lap as she climaxes, well, if he's going to be with you, everything else you bring to the table, going without that or only experiencing that with other women, if it's an open relationship, price admission, he'll pay to be in a relationship with you. There are lots of guys out there, though. We hear women complaining about them all the time who don't particularly like oral, who aren't very good at oral, who don't give a shit if their partner gets off during oral sex. Maybe they enjoy it, but only as foreplay. You're as likely to find yourself in bed with one of those guys as you are with a guy who's really invested in his, you know, the magic powers of his tongue to make his female partner come. So be honest about what works for you. You'll find the right guys, either a guy who's willing to pay the price of admission that he can't make you come through oral, or a guy who was, that's not important to, wasn't invested in making his girlfriend or wife come during oral sex. Either of those kinds of guys would be good partners for you. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with, and I am so excited to speak with this person, I can't even tell you, Erica Lust, an award-winning indie erotic filmmaker who creates sex-positive adult cinema by portraying relatable characters in realistic sex, going beyond gender stereotypes and harmful fetishizations to offer a groundbreaking alternative to mass-produced mainstream porn. If you're a listener of The Savage Lovecast, you are probably familiar with Erica Lust's work. If you are not, go get familiar. Erica, welcome to the Savage Lovecast. Well, thank you very much. Uh, lovely to be here. It's really kind of you to 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 do the interview. You, we were just talking before we started recording that you currently at home with COVID. Oh yeah, I am. <laughs> but it's the fifth day, and I'm already getting used to it, and I don't feel that bad. But but at the same time, uh, you do feel it. It's in your body, you know. Well, we wish you a, a full and speedy recovery. Hope you're 100% soon. And uh, I'm glad you're still up for talking about pornography with some faggot on the other side of the of world. Of course. 
I'm passionate about porn and always want to talk about it. <laughs> your, your first erotic film, The Good Girl, came out in 2004, and it was an instant sensation. That mm. was almost 20 years ago. How did you get into making mm. porn? Why did you decide to, to go into porn? When you made The Good Girl, were you thinking of mm. porn as a career? Or did The Good Girl set you on this course? Well, it did set me on this course. It was not really a career choice. Uh, it was more of an experiment for me, I think. I mean, I I kind of got into porn because I was interested in, in sexuality. And as a young adult, I obviously looked at porn to try to figure out more about what I liked and 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 what I didn't like and 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 how I felt about about sex in general. And I think many people they use porn as some kind of education, even if it was never really thought to be education. Uh, and uh, and in my case, I realized that my body did react to the porn I was watching. I got horny and that felt good. But at the same time, many of the images that I was looking at didn't feel that great to me. And I had many, many conversations with friends, with male friends and female friends, and tried to figure out if there was some kind of, 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 of systemic opinions about porn. And it became pretty clear to me that most of my male friends, that they had a very easy relationship with porn. They used it, they liked it, it was part of their life. Uh, whereas most of my female friends had very similar feelings to mine that that they wanted to like it, but they didn't really like it. And then when we started to talk about why, it became clear that it had to do that with with the feeling that it was not really about that, that we somehow as women were reduced to some kind of 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 toy or sex toy for male pleasure, some kind of tool for their pleasure. But it wasn't really our stories. It wasn't really about us. And that was really what I wanted to change when I, thinking about making my first short film, I kind of sat down and I said to myself, is there a way that I could make a porno that would have to do with my values that would tell the story from the woman's point of view uh, instead of of just kind of showing the male gaze, showing my female gaze somehow. Uh, and that's how, how it all started. So let's talk about X Confessions, which is uh, one of your projects. You have many projects. It's crowdsourced porn. Can you, for listeners who haven't mm. found their way to X Confessions yet, tell them what it is? I, I think it's just genius. Well, thank you so much. Well, I, I honestly love the project myself. And it really it came about because when I was traveling around with my first films, I was going to festivals and, and meetings and events. And people always were coming up to me wanting to share their stories. So what I did was that I started a website where people could send in their sex stories, their confessions, their kings, ideas, or things they wanted to do or have done, etc. And then I, I started to make short films out of these ideas. And uh, the project has grown quite a lot since then because it started in 2013. 
And uh, I have incorporated the voices of many different people, especially many female directors, uh, community, the LGBTQI plus community. Uh, we are always looking for more BIPOC thoughts out there. And the whole idea is kind of to have people telling their stories in porn from their perspective of, of diversity and, and, and showing that human sexuality is so much wider than what we normally see in the commercial online porn that's out there on all these tube sites. Let's, let's talk about the commercial online porn that's out there. You, you say that you turned to porn when you were a young woman for a kind of sex education, to see what people were doing, to see what might turn you on. Famously, recently, the pop singer Billie Eilish, in an interview with Howard Stern, talked about being exposed to porn first when she was 11 years old, watching a lot of hardcore pornography. Uh, and she said it destroyed her brain. And she went into partnered sex. And then she says, didn't say no to things that were not good for her, that didn't give her pleasure mm -hmm. because she'd seen them in porn. They'd been normalized for her in porn. And she thought that these things were things that she should like or things that she was expected to go along with or agree to. Do you think that's a valid critique? People who, young people are turning to porn for a kind mm -hmm. of sex education. Are they being set up in some ways or at risk, not being set up in all cases, but at risk for mm -hmm. a bumpy entry into partnered sex because of the way porn shaped their expectations? I have to say that I do understand her and I know that many young people feel this way. But somehow here, the problem is it's partly porn, but it's not only porn. Porn is not, it's not the key to the problem. The key to the problem is really sex education. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we are not teaching young people about sex. We are not giving them critical analytic tools to be able to, to, to understand what is happening uh, when they are looking at, at, at the porn on these commercial tube sites online. And I think that it's essential for adults, for parents, for educators to communicate to a, a younger generation that porn is not the same aspect that porn is actually an exaggerated fiction of sex done and performed by professionals and that the people who are producing porn, they have not made it uh, to be educational. But then what, what obviously is happening is that people are watching it and when in lack of education, they do bring it back to their own lives and they try to reproduce what they have seen. Mm -hmm. And I hear stories, especially from young women all the time, that they are thinking that something is wrong with them, that their bodies are not working. They are telling me that they are not being able to reach orgasms with male partners because they are trying to do what they have seen in most of that online porn that is basically four minutes of very hard penetrative uh, uh, vaginal sex and, and that most images that they have seen, the women are not 
in charge of their own pleasure. They are not using their hands. They are not doing a clitoral stimulation that would help them to reach the orgasms, right? So they think that they are not working. One of the things I do frequently when I talk with straight couples, I talk with, you know, a lot of younger straight people who are having partnered sex and the woman can't climax. And I often send them to gay pornography, young straight couples for a little bit of sex education. Mm -hmm. And what I tell them is watch the guy getting fucked. What is he doing? He's stroking his own dick. That's what women have Mm -hmm. to do during penetrative sex. Touch your own clit. When you watch gay pornography, the bottoms are always self-stimulating during penetrative sex. And that's what you don't see in a lot of the pornography that's laid before uh, young straight people or the pornography they find. The pornography that rushes in and then plays the role of the sex educator in the absence of any other sex education. Could you imagine how quickly a sex ed class in a high school would get shut down if the teacher stood up and said, during penetrative vaginal intercourse, you should be using your fingers on your clit or a vibrator? Like Ohio would burst into flames if that was a sex ed class in Ohio one day, one time. Um, I, I do want to ask you, though, a lot of people I know, I, I run a porn festival here in the States. You make pornography, amazing pornography mm. with really great production values, hearkening back to when porn was you know, a cinematic genre, not just an online hustle for a lot of people. But a lot of people I know in porn really kind of reflexively reject this idea that porn is modeling anything for anyone, that what people are seeing in porn, they're then trying to repeat, particularly young and inexperienced people, trying to repeat with partners, with sometimes, as in Billie Eilish's experience, disastrous results. And I wanted to read back something you said to the New York Times in a profile they recently did of you. When women watch porn, they need to see that women are being stimulated. If there is a scene with penetrative sex, Mm -hmm. viewers need to see a woman using her hand or a vibrator at the same time, because that's what works for most women. That seems to be an indication that you believe that people will watch porn and then come away with an idea of what they should do in their own sex life. No, I think it's really important. I think that we have, you know, we have believed somehow that sex should be performed as we see on this online content. And and what we really need to explain also to the world and to people out there is that porn there's not just one type of porn. Mm-hmm. The online the online tube sites that kind of have occupied the whole porn panorama at the moment, they are just a part of the industry because there's also actually an independent porn industry going on at the same time. What happens is that obviously Obviously, we don't have the same space. People don't know that it even exists. So I always stress out the importance for people to understand that if, if they are watching porn, they uh, should understand that then somehow they are part of the porn industry. They are consumers. What they are watching, where the time that they are spending on these sites is affecting the whole industry. And I think it's it's very important to reflect on that and to try to become a responsible porn consumer. When you go online and you are checking out porn, 
see if the website you are looking at, do they have an about page? Can you learn anything about that company, about the owners, about the values? How are they making their films? Can you watch a making of? Can you see an interview with some of the performers? Mm -hmm. So you get an idea if that porn is something that you feel okay with, that you feel is, 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 is sharing your set of value as a person. For the casual porn viewer, for the casual, casual porn consumer who's just like getting online and looking for stuff, it, it seems, we, you know, the onus can't be entirely on that person to like be critical and thoughtful about finding their way to good and representative stuff. It almost seems like the good and representative stuff needs to crowd out the crap stuff. Like the boys who are watching porn clips on the tube sites of women getting penetrated roughly for three minutes and then climaxing with no any other attention paid to her body mm-hmm. are getting a false impression of how women work. And it seems to me that yes. we need to flood the mark. We need to make that not the mainstream. That needs to be diluted so that what boys encounter, men encounter, and women encounter is porn that realistically portrays sex as with, you know, the understanding that, you know, porn is to real sex mm-hmm. in real life as action movies are to daily life. It's exaggerated. It's kabuki mm-hmm. sex. But it does seem to me that people who make porn, in addition to people who consume porn, have a responsibility to take into account. Of course they have. And you do. You're one of those responsible pornographers. I like to think I'm one of those responsible pornographers too with Hump. We're very thoughtful about what goes into Hump. But how do we do that? How do yeah. we crowd out the crap that gives people, that terrorizes young women like Billie Eilish and that gives young men, yeah. often young straight men, a really false impression of what heterosexual sex is going to look like? Well, I think we need more porn culture. We need more porn literacy. We need more conversations out in the open about porn. We need to realize that porn is here to that it's not a genre that only some men are looking at at late hours at night and that it doesn't have a real impact in our society because that's not true. Porn has become mass media. Porn is big. Porn is huge. Porn is a huge part of the internet. And of course, porn is mirroring somehow the values that we have in our society. We live in a society that is misogynistic and that has many racist, homophobic, etc. values in it. And that kind of porn is what we are seeing on many of these tube sites. But I think as a society, we need to start react on this. We need to start conversations. We need to talk about it. We need to say, hey, no, this is not good enough when we go online and we read a tagline saying tiny teen is getting destroyed. That is not an okay language to use. And I think that that here it's also very important that this is not the others who are the only ones commenting on this. We also need straight, white, uh, hetero, cis guys to, to kind of take responsibility and to, and to stand up and to tell their peers that this is not okay. And, and to be mad. I think straight cis guys should be mad because this kind of pornography and the kinds of expectations 
that it shapes sets cis straight guys up for sexual failure. They're not going to be able to please their partners. They're not going to be invited back for seconds if they go into a sexual encounter choking someone without their consent, without talking about anything, jackhammering away during PIV sex without any attention being paid, without any foreplay, and then treating the woman like there was something wrong with her that she didn't come from that. That's not like straight guys who go into sex with that kind of entitlement attitude and those kinds of expectations, they're not going to have good sex lives. They're going to fail. And if they understand this, if they understand this, then they're going to help us to change this. So I think we need to open up their eyes somehow. If we can get to them, we're going to see a bigger change in society. But it's all, this is as always, it starts from the grassroots movement. It starts from people Mm -hmm. who are seeing what is going on and who's wanting to change it. But the problem here is really also that sex is still such a shame in our society. It's something that people don't want even to talk about. And the same happens, you know, with young people uh, when we're talking about sex education and with parents who are not preparing their teenagers and and even, like you said before, their maybe nine-year-olds or 11-year-olds for what they are going to see on the internet. I always say I have two daughters myself, and I always say I'm never going to let them, you know, out to a bar or a discotheque without really having the conversation with them about alcohol, about tobacco, about drugs, about risks, how to behave, etc. But what happens in today's society is that we do let very young people out on the internet without explaining anything to them about values and about what they will will encounter on the internet and how to think critically, not only about porn, but about media in general. I mean, imagine if you as a mother could have a conversation with your kids saying, hey, have you ever watched porn? And maybe they don't want to answer, etc. <laughs> but you don't let them slip away. You right. just keep on going and you say, you know, I, I watch it myself sometimes, but if I if I have to be honest with you, when when I when I looked at it, I don't feel that comfortable with it because I see many values that I don't agree with. I see that women are being treated in a very submissive way, and they are normally used that they should always be available to the men, and I don't feel comfortable with that. And I see all these fetishized categories of people. And that that doesn't, that is not according to my values. And you know what happens? That kids, their their references in life are their parents. So they will listen to you. They will take that information with them. And next time they might go online to this site. Maybe they will have your thoughts in their head and they will look for themselves and they will say, no, this is probably not what I should be watching. I mean, kids are smart. The thing that I would like all parents to say to kids about pornography is think about what happened before they started filming. What happened? Like a, a, yes. a set of yes. people walking on to into a bedroom and filming. That doesn't happen by accident. What do you think happened before that? And if you say that to a kid, a light bulb goes off over their head. Oh, they talked about it. Yeah, and like for some porn, you know, very professional porn shoots, they had negotiations, they're assigned contracts. That was a protracted discussion 
before the filming. And if you can get it into a kid's head to like think about what happened before the cameras got turned on, it puts what hap- what's happening in the porn that they're watching in a different light, a different kind of context. So speaking about talking about talking about it, I, I want to hear about your newest uh, project, The Porn Conversation, mm-hmm. which people can find at thepornconversation.org, uh, which you co-founded with your husband. Please tell us about it. Well, for me, uh, it, it, this is a project that started because I, as, as the person making porn, uh, people are coming up to me all the time asking me, how am I talking to my kids about porn? Uh, they are, parents are worried. They want uh, guidance. They want help. They want to understand how they can have this kind of conversation because many of them are feeling that the, in, in the education systems in our schools, that it's not being really talked about. It's more something where people are, you know, putting their heads in the sand and pretending it doesn't really exist. They are talking about the most basic things about sex, but they are not talking about the enormous influence that porn is having on our society today. So the idea of this project, uh, we went together with with um, a pair of sex therapists, uh, and they helped us develop materials. So we have uh, some PDF guides that you can download from this site uh, explaining how you can get into this conversation and what subjects you should touch on. We also have uh, guides for for teachers and even a set curriculum because we realized that it kind of goes with the conversation and many people are not talking about sex and talking about porn because they are lacking the knowledge of how to talk about these things. There's something I sometimes have trouble talking about with my callers. I occasionally get calls from parents who've, you know, Mm -hmm. looked at their kids' browser histories. They're not so psyched about some of the porn their kids might be looking at. Maybe it's extreme. Maybe it's violent. Maybe it's, you know, just the tube clips, you know, where it's about the male gaze. And again, I think setting straight guys up Mm -hmm. for failure once their romantic and sexual lives begin and straight guys should be pissed about (laughs) being set up for failure like that. Mm -hmm. But the question I often get from parents is, are there places I should send my kid? Is there better porn out there that I mm. should be getting for mm. my kid? Is there a porn site I should get my 14-year-old mm. access to or a membership to? And I'm never sure how to feel about that question. I don't know yeah. as a parent how I would feel about going to my, you know, if I still had a teenager, yeah. going to him and saying, oh, I bought you a membership at this porn site. I think the porn here is good. It reflects yeah. my values. It models better behaviors. Go... Dad thinks you should go here. Is that something you would recommend a parent do? Get a kid a membership at X Confessions? Get a kid a membership at, you know, Cindy Gallup's site, Make Love Not Porn? Yeah. Or do we have to just arm our kids with the information they need and let them find their own way? This is obviously a delicate question. And obviously, I'm kind of in a conflict of interest if I'm starting to tell people that they should come to my network and sign up their kids. I mean, adult entertainment is meant for people about 18 years old. 
So if you have a kid who's turning 18, maybe this could be a great idea. If your kid is younger, then you as a parent will have to decide for yourself how you feel about this whole situation. I mean, it's an impossible position for a parent to be in thinking about their kid turning 18 and then sending them to a good porn site after, what, five years potentially of their kid looking at... Can we say that it's it's never too late? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. I think that's true. That obviously they might have been already seeing many things online. But I also honestly believe that as human beings, that we are capable of of re-education and that we are capable of understanding the world and opening up our eyes to different ways of thinking. So I, I honestly believe that it's really never too late to change your perspective. Uh, but but I, I, I wanted to say that there are also other sites online that are may, may not be showing explicit sex, but rather erotic uh, situation, but that can help you to understand the sexual situations uh, where, because I I see that one of the most important things I see in filmmaking and and the the enormous possibility of of cinema to tell stories and to explain characters and situations and to make you as an audience empathize with different situations and different uh, sexual identities and different situations. And I love that about cinema, uh, the way it can really open up our minds and help us see new perspectives. Erica Lust, check out her website, ericalust.com. Check out X Confessions. It's an amazing amazing project and check out her new project. I'm recommending this to all the parents out there who call me about talking with your kids about porn. Check out the pornconversation.org for good advice on how to get those conversations started. Erica Lust, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I I think you're just a a transformative figure in, in the world of pornography. And it was a real honor to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for saying that. That really makes my day done. Hey, Magnum Subs, if you liked this conversation, be sure to come to Sack Lunch this Thursday at noon Pacific time. Erica will be joining me with her partner on The Porn Conversation to answer your questions about porn and talking to kids about sex. If you're a Magnum Sub, we'll send you the link on Thursday. We love you, and we will see you soon. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the team. I have a 20-something says by woman from the Southeast with a predicament. I recently ended a very unhealthy relationship of three and a half years with someone who has had issues with empathizing and respecting boundaries and feelings. Recently, I have reconnected with someone I went on a date with four years ago and have remained friendly with him since. We hung out and went on a few casual dates over the span of three months. We had sex once. Amazing. Phenomenal sex. He was the first guy to actually be good at going down on me, was attentive to my pleasure, and was really fun after not having sex at all for several months. We had opened up about mental health, emotions, and how we both have dealt with navigating through the struggles of being born in poverty and still are advancing to higher education success. As he is in medical school right now, and I am finishing my master's to become an autism specialist in the spring. The second time we had sex, it was really not good. 
We had just gotten back from getting a few drinks, and it was the opposite of the first time. No foreplay, lots of jackhammering, my quilt was feeling ignored, and I didn't come close to getting off. Afterwards, while nakedly laying down, he says, yeah, that was good. But, you know, last time when you talked dirty, it was too porny. I remember my ex-girlfriend was amazing at dirty talking, and I never had to say anything about it to her, ever. I was offended and looked at him in disbelief. Like, dude, did you really just say to me that shit while your tongue is still inside of me? I wasn't hurt from him critiquing my dirty talk. We all have preferences, and I'd rather someone communicate what works and what doesn't than them just put up with being turned off. I just hated the direct comparison that he had between me and his ex. I thought it showed a lack of emotional maturity and respect for my feelings. It just made me want to go home and shower for hours, grabbing him off of me. He has since gone back to med school four hours away, and I haven't been giving much attention to him or us. He apologized since after I brought it up, but I don't know. Am I crazy for being so violently turned off by this comment, or was it truly a red flag I should listen to? I hate baseball metaphors, all sports metaphors, but he's batting 500, kind of, sort of, or fucking 500. You've had sex with this guy twice. The first time was great. The second time, after you guys had been drinking, not so great. I would have been offended, too, by what he said. I would have been offended by the jackhammering if he jackhammered me. And I would have been offended if a guy, after sex, while we're still coming down, began to critique my performance and compare it unfavorably to the performance of his ex-boyfriend. My ex-boyfriend. Now, he was really good at sucking dick. You need to get better at it. Like my ex-boyfriend. You suck dick too porny, or you dirty talk too porny, or whatever. Too porny. But my ex-boyfriend, oh my God, he was amazing at it. My reaction would have been to go find his ex-boyfriend on a dating app or social media and go fuck his ex-boyfriend and maybe get some pointers that way. The question here is, do you give this guy another chance? In general, if after sex with someone you find yourself in a shower like Silkwood, this is a 40-year-old pop culture reference, everybody go look that up, scrubbing your body down? Uh, yeah, no, typically you don't circle back to that person. You regard the one time you had sex with that person, it went well the first time, as an anomaly. And as he got to know you better and began to take the filters off, he exposed himself as an inconsiderate lout with low emotional intelligence and bad judgment. And you wouldn't feel safe in bed with him again. I mean, that's typically the rule there. If you find yourself in the shower for hours trying to scrub a person off you after you have sex with them, you're not going to feel great about getting back together with them for sex. All that said, if the sex that first time was great and you guys share a history and you have some life experience in common about being raised in poverty and striving now, both of you, in college, getting educations, setting yourselves up for good careers, maybe he didn't realize. Maybe you could do a brutal download where you tell him, look, I don't ever want to fuck you again because of this. What were you thinking? And then see what he says. But you should only engage in this emotional labor. You should only do this emotional labor if it's something that you want to do because you want to get back to the person he was the first time you fucked around. 
maybe the first time you fucked around, that's who he really is. And the second time you fucked around, he'd had too much to drink and he was just being a, a, a selfish asshole. Maybe I'm giving him too much benefit of the doubt, but you know, this may be me engaged in a little bit of a dickful thinking or twatful thinking or clipful thinking uh, on your behalf. So, so my final ruling, my final answer is don't see this guy again. My final answer is if you're silkwood in the shower afterwards, you shouldn't fuck that person again. But if the sex was really good and you wanted to do the emotional labor of really, really laying into him and critiquing his performance and seeing how he reacted to that and seeing then if you felt safe, giving him another chance. If I was your friend or your sex advice podcaster, I wouldn't think you were crazy for giving him that chance, that one last chance. And then you find yourself in the shower again, silk, wouldn't it? Yeah, no. Not only shouldn't you fuck him again, block him. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Tay Plays Games tweets, after being a faithful listener of the Savage Lovecast for nearly 10 years, the pandemic got in the way of listening every week. I'm finally getting around to listening again with a new Magnum subscription, and I'm loving every second of it. Welcome back, Tay Plays Games. Nice to have you as a listener again, and thank you so much for becoming a Magnum sub. Promise Chaos tweets, cleaning houses in Utah is fun. I'm cleaning for an extra Mormon lady today while also listening to the Cuck Week episode of Fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast. Happy Cuck Week from Utah, everybody. And finally, Mike Bates tweets, taking care of my parents while they recover from COVID isn't exactly the best time to accidentally start playing at Fake Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast, but hey, maybe they'll learn something. Yeah, Mike, it's never too late to learn old dogs' new tricks. Like they say, you can teach them harder, not impossible. And here's hoping your parents feel better soon, most importantly. And heading home to take care of your parents while they recover from COVID, you are a good son, Mike. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted to your social media this week about the show, to Facebook, to Instagram, to your Instagram stories, and to Twitter. It gets the word out about the show, and we really, really appreciate it. All right, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This message is for the caller on episode 796 who is in a cuckold relationship and wanted to have a cuckolding experience, possibly a gangbang um, on her uh, wedding night. I just wanted to give her some hope and say it's definitely possible because I did something very similar. Um, but I wanted to suggest a few things. Uh, firstly, I would second what Dan says and um, don't do it on, on your wedding night. And don't even do it on the wedding morning because in the morning you are rushed from the second you wake up until you walk down the aisle. You won't have time. Uh, and at night you just want to take your dress off and go to bed. So what I did was I had a rehearsal and I kept that rehearsal very tight. I skipped the rehearsal dinner and let everyone go home early. And then I went back to the hotel where my partner who acted as my bull and my husband uh, were waiting for me. And I would definitely go with someone that you know or have some comfort level with. I asked one of my ongoing partners to 
do this for me and he acted as our bull and it worked out really well. We also did a dry run, highly recommend it. Um, so that way your future husband and your bull can be in the same room at the same time and figure out if they are, you know, if you're all compatible. And that makes it so much easier on your second time around, right before your wedding. Keep it simple. I would not have, you know, 10 people in the room. One person, two person. I promise you that's going to be enough. So I hope you have a fabulous time. I had a great time and I hope you do too. Hi, Dan. This is for the woman in episode 796 who is considering adding cuckolding to her wedding night. Just wanted to say I totally agree with you, Dan. It's just, you know, too many things to plan and execute on your wedding day. You'll, you'll just be too tired. But what a fun way to wear your wedding dress again in the future. You could do some role playing, put the dress on, pretend it is your wedding night. Um, just a really, really fun way to get some more use out of that dress. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller who was up in arms regarding the eat, sleep, eat ass t-shirt at the gym. The bottom line is that it's a tacky, inappropriate shirt. Yeah, it's distasteful, but I question why the caller really found it bothering them so much. You'd think that after seeing dumb fucks wearing MAGA hats for five or six years now, we wouldn't let a tacky slogan bother us this much. Dude, move on. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about the advice I gave on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us still at 206-302-2064. We prefer voice memos. The sound quality is better. But we love your calls. We love your questions. We love your comments, however you choose to get them to us. Big news about this month's Sack Lunch. Sack Lunch is my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. Erica Lust and porn educator Avril Louise Clark will be joining us for this month's Sack Lunch. They'll be taking your questions about porn, about kids, about kids and porn. That's this Thursday, February 3rd, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. If you're not already a Magnum sub, you can get a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast right now at savage.love. Gets you access to our entire archive of extra-long ad-free Magnum Lovecast episodes, along with your exclusive invite to Sack Lunch. Okay, follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Erica Lust on Twitter at Erica Lust. And hey, Twitter, verify Erica Lust already? She's famous. The New York Times has profiled her. She almost has 100k followers already. It looks weird, weird and porn and sexphobic that Erica Lust isn't already verified. All right, Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you.